All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Dr. Chris Ranier. Dr. Ranier is an orthopaedic surgeon specialising in sports medicine at University of Western Ontario alumni, the Human 2.0 co-founder, husband and proud father to three exceptionally talented grown children. After a long course of training, he has worked as an orthopaedic surgeon for over a decade and now works to change the face of medicine through his various social media platforms. He seeks to educate and empower people by teaching them the tools with which to positively impact their musculoskeletal health and wellness, but not satisfied to merely talk the talk, he also wants to walk the walk as well. As an educator as well as a physician, Chris Ranier wants to help and empower everyone to take charge of their own health and wellness. He wants everyone to become a better version of themselves and he wants to give everyone the tools with which to do it. After all, if you're not going to do it, who will? And now... Let's get to the interview. Because, I mean, I love your social media. Like, I love your YouTube. The the stuff you go into, it's like the inner child's dream. You know, you cover all these amazing films and show what the realistic hits would be like. And, you know, you cover areas that most of us don't want to think about. It's like the dark side of, you know, obesity and things like that. How on earth do you describe what you do? Because you have this amazing YouTube channel. You're, you know, an orthopedic surgeon. If somebody says to you, who are you? How, how do you explain this amazing life you have? Um, I would just tell, say to people that uh, I am uh, an educator um, and uh, I'm using social media as my tool with which to educate people. And I'm educating um, people about the things uh, about which I am passionate. Um, And so this is things that I like to either content I like to consume, activities I like to do, or things that I think are important. Um, And so I base what I share with people around those things. And I am really just trying to, I really believe in the idea of we control our own destinies. And so I am trying to create a lifestyle, um, the lifestyle that I want, right? So I'm trying to do cool shit and I'm trying to talk about cool shit. And um, and I think that by doing those things and putting that energy out there, that one day I will be the cool shit that, that people talk about. Oh, no, you've definitely got an audience. Like, I couldn't find a bad word about you. You know, when you were doing sort of like jumped onto Vice's channel and you were introducing things, people are like, oh, check out his channel. It's amazing. You've got to look at it. You know, everybody has this passion, this love for you. But how on earth did you get involved in this? 
you talked about cross training. You've talked about participating in sports and being an active child. Was that the kind of thing that got you interested in movement? Or did you always kind of think, how's the body work, et cetera? So um, I've always had an interest in, in um, how the body works um, and that kind of thing. But what really got me going in movement, um, that, that was kind of a fluke. Uh, and that um, I, after being in practice as an orthopedic surgeon for a few years, I, um, I was really unhappy with the results that uh, my patients were getting after I would send them to physiotherapy. And, and, and let me preface what I'm going to say by, by saying that I don't want people who are listening to think that I think I'm the perfect surgeon and I don't make any mistakes and that, and that nobody can do it better than me. That's not the case. Um, but um, what I'm talking about is that like if I did an operation and when I did that operation, I plan that operation to go a certain way. I did that operation and technically speaking, everything about that operation was exactly the way I planned it. Everything went successful. Um, I, I looked at the result afterwards and I said, yeah, man, that's, that's successful. I, I checked the range of motion before I left the operating room. I checked the stability. Everything was bang on point. And so I said, okay, my part is done. Now it becomes the patient and the physiotherapist part. Um, so in those situations, uh, I would send those patients away and, you know, some of the times I would not get a good result. And when you, when you look back and you try and figure out everything that you weren't getting, you know, everything that was under your control, I go, ah, man, I, I addressed all of those things. Why didn't this work out? So I, I started to see that, um, I started to look into physiotherapy a little bit. And I started to realize, oh, my God, um, not all physiotherapists are created equal and they're not all doing the same thing. Some would be doing things that I thought were worthwhile and others would be handing people a, a, a sheet of paper and say, here are your exercises. Go do that. Bye bye. And, yep. and, and, and I'm like, geez, man, this is no good. So um, I I'm I like to think of myself as a problem solver. And so uh, I started to. Um, <clears throat> I started to become a little bit more specific and, and what I was asking for when I sent patients to physiotherapy. And if you ask physiotherapists in my city, my city, Ottawa, is a city of a million, but I already have a reputation. And um, they, they would say, oh, my God, you should see his physiotherapy requisitions because it's not, oh, had knee surgery, physiotherapy for knee. It's like um, uh, this patient had this surgery. They were required. Um, active progressive exercise therapy, no modalities, no machines. I specifically want you to address range of motion and flexibility of this joint and then strengthening of the, these muscles in this particular order and a home exercise program, balance proprioception of training. I, and this is what I was writing. And, and I was writing this all the time. And once I started doing that, things got a little bit better, but it still wasn't quite to the extent that I wanted. And I would come home all the time and I'd complain to my wife. And, and my wife was like, after a while, she got sick of hearing me. She said, oh, you should shut up and do something about it. And so I said, okay, great. So uh, I opened a facility. I said, I, I, I'm not trained as a physiotherapist. I don't want to tell physiotherapists what to do, but I'm going to open a facility. So I did that. 
called Human 2.0. And so we have a combined rehabilitation movement facility in, in Ottawa that and we service all kinds of patients, whether they're um, injured, uh, injured rehab uh, patients, or whether they're athletes, performance athletes, elite athletes, we, we treat them all and train them all. Um, so I did that. And when I first opened that facility, I had the great fortune, um, uh, although I'm not working with this individual anymore, but I had the great fortune at that time of hiring a coach who um, was doing a lot of interesting things. And, and he, he, when I met him, he had been previously been a CrossFit coach. And then he was kind of switching out of CrossFit because a lot of patients or a lot of his clients were injuring themselves. And he was focusing more on this thing called mobility. And I'm like, mobility, what the hell is that? What are you talking about? And so he introduced me to that. And I started to uh, do that because, you know, geez, like I, my, my facility has a gym in it and we have classes. So when I'm not doing train, when I'm not seeing patients, oh, I'll do some classes. I love to work out. So I did that. And I'm starting to look at what he was doing a little bit more analytically. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And this is a different way of thinking about training because prior to that, um, my focus on training had always been bigger, faster, stronger, right? Because like I had played American football, not what you guys call football, but I played American football. I had played it since the age of eight and always I had played at all levels, including the, the um, I had gone as high as the CFL, which is our NFL equivalent. Um, and uh, uh, like my, my idea about training had always been bigger, faster, stronger. Right. Um, but as I was done with football now uh, and, you know, um, uh, an orthopedic clinician, I was still working out. So personally, I had to change my focus. And what I really liked about mobility is like, hey, you know, it's not saying that you can't be strong, but it's incorporating strength and flexibility, um, marrying the two. And then its focus is about longevity, right? Because I, you can't, I can't do as I'm 53 and as a 53-year-old man, I, I, well, it's not that I can't do bigger, faster, stronger stuff, but... At 53, if I'm doing bigger, faster, stronger, all of that as my primary type of training, I am going to crush my body, right? And I see that. I treat those patients. Uh, I see them coming from CrossFit or from other disciplines, and they're going to crush themselves and because your body can't take that uh, indefinitely. So that was my introduction to mobility. And then I saw the, the use of it for myself, first for myself, and then I thought, hey, this is going to be great for patients. And so then I started to sort of steer our organization, our business in that direction and say, hey, this is something that I think is worthwhile for people. It, it maintains fitness. It maintains um, your health and wellness. And um, it also approaches those uh, things from the point of longevity. And this is something that you can do for life. So that's how I kind of got into it. And that's why I sort of promote that. No, it's great. I mean, because it, we're definitely moving in the right direction with like looking at mobility, flexibility, longevity. You know, we always look at athletes, but then we don't look at the guy who can barely go up a flight of stairs without being out of breath. <laughs> and that's something I think a lot of us are now coming interested. Like when I went to the physio last 
like you said, I got a piece of paper that said, here's 10 moves, and it was very basic. It didn't matter what level you are, what you had done. Do you see a similarity in the wear and tear? Is it those kind of like overuse of an injury? You know, somebody sat with a dodgy knee for years and they eventually see somebody when it's basically falling apart. You know, do we see it as a sense of pride rather than, uh, you know, because you said health is essential. Yes. Well, you know, when I think back to um, my my training uh, prior to my own clinical practice, right, it, it was always about being tough, being man, not showing weakness, right? And so um, if you if you were injured, you didn't want to show that you were injured. And and even when I think about my own time on the on the football field, um, there were times when I would hide injuries um, as a point of pride because I'm trying to be tougher than the next guy and show them that I, that I'm not you know I'm not weak and and uh, you know we we carry that forward but but it does have an impact on our bodies and um, there are so many occasions um, where I can think of people who whether they're patients or people I've created content about, or even sometimes in my own with my myself, that where we had something, we could have received treatment to make that thing better when it was manageable, but we did not do that out of a sense of pride or stupidity or whatever, a stubbornness, and then mm-hmm. later it, it ends up being something that is unmanageable. You know, I just recently did a piece of content on Ronnie Coleman, one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time. And I remember as a young teen watching Ronnie Coleman, uh, you know, he was competing against Dorian Yates. And it's like he would lift incredible amounts of weight. And I remember his his little saying, lightweight, right? Um, He's throwing up these huge weights. But when I did this content because now Ronnie Coleman can barely walk. And you, when you look at what he did and you listen um, in, I remember there's one thing in particular that he said that struck me and he said how he had injured his back. Um, first he injured it during football and then he went to go see a chiropractor and he um, at one point his back hurt him so badly that Uh, and he was still playing football at that time in college, that he had to go see the chiropractor on a daily basis for several years. And I think to myself, dude, like, you know, you could have just gone and seen a a physician, get some imaging, and then treated that problem. And and, and that, you know, him doing that was the, the thing, the precursor that caused his eventual decline over the years to this condition that he's in now. And um, he could have just seen somebody and potentially have stopped that whole cascade of events, right? And it's such a shame. And it's not to say that, you know, I needed him to, um, you know, not have a back problem so that he could continue on bodybuilding uh, and, and, and still be competing. No, 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 that's not it. All I'm saying is that he could have treated himself so that in his retirement from the sport of bodybuilding, um, he could walk around normally, you know, and interact with, with his family and kids without having to use crutches or a walker or, or 
have had 12 operations on his back. Could have mm-hmm. it, it, it could have been different. Because I mean, I went to the Arnold's recently, the you know the sports festival, and the number of people who were just devastated by injury, you know, and it was almost like they continued through it because it was like a sense of pride or a competition. And you think, does it does it ever frustrate you when you do these videos and you see people who you knew with a bit like because you understand the body structure, the orthopedic side of things, that with a simple bit of work and some good focus rehab, they could be, you know, they could have the longevity, they could have the freedom. For sure that 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 is frustrating, you know, like um the the uh, I see this quite often um with even some of my own patients, um that people where they they yeah, I'm not sure what it is, pride, or they think they know better or whatever, but uh, they, they will make decisions where they are going to ignore this particular thing, um, this particular problem, and, and carry on down a particular path when, and then I, it's like, I know the outcome, right? I can see what the outcome of this, their approach will be. And then I think to, um, you know, they're trying to avoid having to do this work. But I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that work, um, you know, although it may be an inconvenience now, is relatively minor uh, when compared to the inconvenience that you are going to have down the road, right, Um, which will be so much larger, so much larger and so much more of a pain. Um, I see that. And, and it does frustrate me. But, you know, um, I remember being very frustrated when I, uh, you know, was creating that uh, that video about Ronnie Coleman, because I just thought, man, you did this to yourself and there was no need. Mm-hmm. And sure, you can say to everybody, I'm the greatest bodybuilder that ever lived, but you can barely walk. Um, and you've had to undergo 12 operations and it's like, yeah, it didn't need to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of having trophies if you can barely walk to pick them up? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's why I'm so glad you've got such a badass YouTube channel. You know, you're, you're bringing like an understanding to the masses of, you know, that's fucked up that don't do that. That's how we would fix this. You have this unique way of delivering it. You know, you give like an educational spiel where, but you also bring the data, you bring the research papers, but you Mm. make it fun. You make it enjoyable. You break up media of films we watched and like the, the raid John wick. I love these kind of shows. Every episode of yours, I'm like, when's the next video out? It's (laughs) so, it's just, it's, you just can't help but binge into it. You know, you have such this great way of doing it. What was the inspiration for that? Um, well, first of all, I want to say thank you. I appreciate your, your comments. Um, and it's good to know that it, that my content is well received. Um, and uh, so what I'll say is that um, I've had the great fortune of learning from, from those uh, around me. And um, when uh, prior to me starting this, my wife and I had another YouTube channel, which was just uh, kind of just about fun and humor stuff. And we had created that because two of my sons were fairly prominent YouTubers uh, for, for a couple of years and, and their friends were all YouTubers. So we got to see that 
um, from the inside because we were the permissive parents. When my son and, and his friends were blowing up shit, they were doing it in our backyard um, or destroying stuff. None of the other parents would allow them to do it. And, and my wife and I thought, well, if they're going to do this, we'd rather have them do it where we can see it so that we know that they're being safe. And I was kind of the in the background safety guy. So we, we saw that and we had, and, and people had said, oh, geez, your parents are funny. You should, they should have a channel. So we started a channel um, and, I, and I did that. But then um, I, I, we stopped after a while. I was just kind of very onerous having to do that, prepare for that. And it was just, just random shit. So um, at one point we just stopped and I said to my wife, you know, if I'm going to start a channel, I want to start something that's going to be of value to people. And I want to provide uh, something that's educational. So, so when I started a channel, the Dr. Chris channel, um, that was my intention. And if you look back at my very first videos, um, my they, the videos were more didactic and just kind of the way that um, I was taught in university or, or when I was doing my residency. Mm. And that's the kind of content I was putting out. And I did. And although I do have a, um, one of the things that I did before medicine was teaching, I have a teaching a formal uh, bachelor's of education in teaching. Um, I was just kind of doing this old, old, dry approach to education. And I thought this, you know, I looked at the, the, the data from people watching and I thought this is not really, it's not going to catch on. So I need to change what I'm doing. So I thought to myself, um, why don't, why can't I be a little bit like what my son is like, uh, or my sons are like, you know, they got a little bit of clickbait in their titles and thumbnails and they're funny, they're humorous. And I thought, there's no reason why I can't take this educational content and be a little bit humorous, a little bit funny, uh, and um, then it would make it more palatable. And and ultimately, the the the, the um, recipe that I decided upon is I said, look, it, I I'm just going to uh, like when you see me in the videos, people go, oh, you're putting on an act, you're you're doing all this. If you knew me in real life, you would know that what you see is what you get. I have one speed and I'm loud. I, I have one volume and that's what I am like all the time. And my patients know that, the hospital staff know that. And that's just what I'm like in the video. So I thought instead of trying to be this uptight, dodgy, old, like classical teaching kind of guy, I'm just going to be myself and I'm going to entertain people. But... When they're not paying attention, I'm going to sprinkle in a little bit of education, right? And, and so I thought that's what I'm going to do. And as soon as I started doing that, the um, channel started to gain more traction. And so, um, you know, I stumbled upon this approach of just picking current um, current events, um, you know, uh, just all things from all different kinds of media um, that people like and stuff that I like. And um, then trying to figure out, well, how can I take this thing? Like, like for example, John Wick, I, that's one of my favorite movie franchises. And I love the films. And I thought, how can I teach people about orthopedics, sports injuries, or, or traumatic injuries, how, and how we treat them using John Wick? So that's what I did. And, and people started to like that. And then I realized 
like if I if I think about this rationally, the community of people that are going to watch um, videos on orthopedic surgery, that's a pretty small um, population of people, right? Like who's going to watch that? Um, other orthopedic surgeons, um, orthopedic trainees, or people who are thinking about going into orthopedics, and a few other people. But if I but if I think about who's going to like John Wick or who's going to like The Raid, who's going to like Warhammer, the, the community of people that are going to like those things, way bigger, right? And oh, so yeah. I can talk to those people about the stuff, the stuff that they love. But as I said, when they're not paying attention, sprinkle in a little bit of education. And so they get their entertainment but I have also educated them. And then wait a minute, they it's the end of the video and they go, holy shit, I just learned about X, Y, and Z. I didn't know that before, right? And they and it's like, they think they're learning about Warhammer or they're thinking they're learning about John Wick, but I'm teaching them about, you know, orthopedic surgery. And um, so that that is um, kind of how I stumbled upon that. And, and that's why I've decided to kind of go that route. And I recognize that other orthopedic surgeons, some of my colleagues, they look at what I do and they think, oh, it's, it's silly. Um, you know, like, what's the point? But I would say to them this, you know, um, I have the analytics for my content, right? And so I know how many people it has touched. And if you think, if you think about this for a second, the average orthopedic surgeon will go to a conference and he, if he's an academic orthopedic surgeon, he will speak at that conference to maybe a thousand orthopedic surgeons. Okay. And then those orthopedic surgeons um, say you have like whatever percentage, uh, let me be generous and say 10% of those orthopedic surgeons are going to go out and um, propagate what they have learned about that particular thing out to their community um, of students, residents, whatever. So, so now we've gone from a thousand, say we've gone to ten thousand, um, and then those people are going to, uh, you know, either touch their patients with that information, or um, you know, uh, use it, incorporate that information into their practice, and it will go out. And so, we'll say we've gone from a thousand to ten thousand. I'll be really generous and say a hundred thousand, hundred thousand over the lifespan of whatever that piece of information. And I touch 100,000 people with one video. I touch, uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and each month I have 2.5 million views on my videos, right? And over the course of the last year, I got 26 million views. Um, so it, it's like the power of me um, being able to impact people is significantly overshadows that of my academic colleagues. And not only that, they have to send, they have to disseminate their message to an orthopedic surgeon who's then going to disseminate it to his trainees, who's then are going to disseminate it to the public. I am direct to the public with hmm. this information. So um, the ability of me to influence um, people um, and, and into to educate people is significantly greater than what it is for my academic colleagues. So they, they laugh at what I'm doing, um, some of them, and they, they poo-poo it, but it's like, bro, just look at the numbers. The numbers speak for themselves. So. Well, I mean, 
my my day job, my alter ego, I suppose you could call it, is I work in a university as a program coordinator for PhD students. And I see some of the white papers and all that they read, and it's so dry and it's so dull. And you, like your way of presenting has a, gets people interested, but like you're saying, it educates them on such unique things that they think, oh, I'll watch another one. And before they know it, they've got a good grounding in, oh, that's wrong with my knee. Oh, my shoulder shouldn't be just like I shouldn't have no strength in my rotator calf and oh wait I know what rotator calf is and oh wait I know what this part is and it, there's so much I think media now is actually this generation are actually getting taught where we know more about our bodies we we more know about things by what we see in films and things like that yes do you think it's scratched your own itch though as well because you cover such a wide range of like body modification surgical stuff but you also look at like you know, like film, anime, TV shows, etc. Has this kind of wide range helped you become a better surgeon, do you think? Because you've learned new techniques, new understanding of things? Well, so anytime I do a video, I'm I am learning about all kinds of things, right? And I, I'm fortunate now that the channel is big enough that I have a, a very small team. Um, but I do have a team that works with me, right? So I have a researcher, I have a writer, and I have an editor. And so we plan out the videos, uh, and I plan out topics, and I always talk with my writing team about um, what are the things that I want to talk about in the video cover, and what's the angle that I want to present. So we do that. Um, I'll have the writer go through, and they'll kind of give me a rough draft. Oh, then I'll take that draft and I will um, complete it, fill it out, um, you know, adding in my sense of humor, all that kind of stuff um, to, to cover these things. But in researching all of those topics and learning about all these topics, it, like it has, I, I don't think it can, like it can't help but make me a better physician or a better surgeon um, or just a more knowledgeable person. Um, because like, I believe that information is king and, and I see myself as a lifelong learner. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to have, uh, additional degrees to prove it. I do have four university degrees, but that like, I don't necessarily need to have a PhD, another P well, I don't have a PhD yet. I have a two master's degrees, but, um, I don't need to have a master, another master's degree or another whatever to to be educated. I can just educate myself by reading or listening um, uh, on a variety of other topics. Hmm. And a, I may not have uh, formal recognition of that, that education, but um, I still will be able to use that in my day-to-day -day life. And I think that there are a ton of things that I learn all the time, which help me to change um, the way that I do things on an ongoing basis, right? Like I, I think that my clinical practice evolves because of what I talk about, what I do, um, and my surgical practice also evolves because of uh, what I talk about, what I do. And not only that, but because of the questions that people ask me because sometimes people ask me questions and it makes me think, oh, geez, well, why do I do this thing, right? And sometimes I find, oh, I did this thing because 
I was trained how to do that 15 years ago, but I've never really looked at that particular thing until now. And hey, by the way, now that I'm looking at it, um, given this, the things that I've learned over the last 15 years, either experientially or um, from reading or whatever, I now know, hey, yeah, there's a better way to do this. I can do this differently. And, or I realized something because I was studying uh, or not studying, but I was researching for a new video and uh, they, they um, you know, uh, made me aware of something that I had not previously been aware of. And it's like, oh, I'm going to incorporate that. So for sure, it, it, it does um, help to, um, you know, guide my evolution. And, and help to educate me and because and, I incorporate aspects of what I learn um, while researching these topics into my day-to-day life all the time. Because I love how like your lifelong journey has encouraging other people to have the same. You know, people are kind of like, I don't even know about this. Oh, I'm going yes. to go find out more about it. So you're you're giving that sort of lust for education to other people. It's an amazing tool to educate, but also encourage as well. Well, so you, you will understand this because of what you do on a day-to-day basis. Um, I love learning and, and I fully believe that education is the key to all of our happiness, right? And, and I want, like, the, there is a, you know, some people um, have this, like, you still see this even in, in uh, popular media, that there is like this stigma to being smart, right? And and people think, oh, well, you're a nerd. Oh my God, you're smart. You're no, yeah. like part of what I'm doing, I'm trying to show people wrong, bro. Being smart is freaking cool, right? And the smarter you are, the, the more likely you are able to get all of the things in life that you desire, whatever it is that you want, the, the smarter you are, the better your chances of attaining that thing. Not only that, the better the chances of the world being a better place to live is is so much more attainable. Like, um, without going too political, right? I'm I'm a Canadian. Um, Most of my audience is American. So I kind of tailor things towards them. Um, But uh, speaking uh, just for a moment about politics, um, you look at Trumpism and uh, I look at Donald Trump and his behavior and I think like people can argue one side or the other, whether they think what he has done or things that he did were good or not. Um, and, and like, I don't want to comment on that, but one thing I do want to say is that, um, if I look at, um, when Trump carries himself, if I look at his overall level of intelligence and I listen to him speak, I would say that it's probably less than many of the people that you, you interact with on a day-to-day basis in, you know, in the PhD program. Hmm. And, but, and, and listen, if, if he's not that smart, that's okay. I'm not saying there's a problem with being not that smart. But there, his behavior, it's like he reveled in his his ignorance he reveled in that and he gave people um the he gave them the permission to feel good about being dumb bro this 
the world is not going to like this is not a good thing. This is yeah. not a good thing. And regardless of what, what your position is on his 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 political uh, aspirations, his motives or, or anything he's done, regardless of that, we shouldn't be celebrating stupidity. Right. And, no. and and we like, as I said, it's not a problem if people are not smart, but we should be encouraging everybody to be as smart as possible. Right. And to learn as much as they can about the world, about each other and, um, you know, how to um, coexist peacefully. Right. And um, like my goal is to make the world a better place. And I will I will fully admit this. I, I want the world to be a better place for everybody. But this is a selfish goal. Right. And, and this is one thing that people don't understand. They don't seem to get like um, you have you. The world doesn't exist outside of you or like with, like you don't exist outside of the world. You are a part of the world and the world is a container in which you are contained. Like you are encompassed by that. And so if you want good shit for yourself, like you have to create it. And that means that entire container needs to be part of that. And so um, like you have all these people who are being stupid and, it, and it's like they shit where they eat. Like why, why would you do that? Like, like I want the world to be a better place because I'm living in it. <laughs> like, I want it to be better for me. Right. But I recognize in, in my because I have read about many different topics, because I have I have a, a viewpoint that it may be more um, tolerant because of what I have read and what I've experienced. I recognize in order for that to be good for me, it has to be good for everybody else, too. Right. Because everybody else is part of it. And there's no way for me to isolate myself from from everybody else and yet still be part of this container and, and be in, within this container. So I, I just think, uh, you know, this was a bit of a ramble. I went off on a tangent, but it's just like, you know, listen, I, I think it's important for everybody to be smart. Not, not just some people, everybody should be smart. Knowledge is power. Um, knowledge is very important. It will bring, it will shape the world into what you want. Um, and, if we are to all coexist and be part of this and, and live great lives, then we all need to be smart. Uh, no, 100% agree. I mean, I, I when I went on and he was parroting the idea that there's alternative facts. <laughs> there, I, was kind of, I was sorry, like, what? <laughs> uh, listen, man, I, I, oh, the, I, that just, I cringe and laugh inside every time I have that. I'm like, there is no alternative. It's like it's like saying physics doesn't exist. It's like saying time doesn't exist. There are no alternate facts. There are facts. The way you interpret them, that's up to you. But the facts still exist, and that is an absolute. And I just thought people who latched onto that that line of thinking, like I feel, I feel sorry for them because I just think, man, oh, and the the only thing I feel sorry for them. And I feel a little bit concerned because I, the other thing is that, um, and I and I don't mean to offend anybody who's watching this or listening to this, but um, dumb people can't inherit the earth, man. We cannot allow dumb people to to run the show and inherit the earth because, like, they're just going to 
drive this into the ground and and like to what end like for for no reason other than they think they know it all um it's it's just uh, yeah well then jump jump on twitter for example and you'll see people sitting there saying oh look at this i think this and they'll pull a fact out but it's uh, you know, say a conservative leaning way newspaper, or this is a leftist newspaper, and they won't be able to like. If you did your PhD, you'd be laughed out if you said, "Here's my sources," and they were all supportive of your, you know. And I keep saying that to people: is read it from that point of view. Read there, consider this, and it's like COVID. People are saying, "Oh, look at this. Here's this evidence of X." Nice. Yes. I would say it to guys in the, like academics and they say, well, where's the blind placebo test? Where's the yes, yes. statistical analysis? Just the basic stuff. And I'm sitting there going, don't, don't ask me. You know, it's, well, and people well, so, are... so you mentioned COVID, right? And this is where it was, uh, where it was became most evident. And, and, and Trump's behavior gave permission to this whole line of thinking and people alternative facts. And you're not considering this. And I'm like, people can say whatever the fuck they want. They can, they can do that. That's their, their prerogative. But in science, and, and people go, oh, science, facts. You guys, your facts change all the time. Well, that's because the, our, our analysis changes. The evidence that we have changes. We learn more about particular things. But I said, people, mm-hmm. science is not a thing. I said, science is a way of thinking. And it's, its default position is skepticism, right? And in science... You know this as a PhD coordinator. In science, if you want to prove something, you have to have facts. And it's a certain level of facts. All facts are not the same, right? There are five levels of research evidence, right? And so you, I say to people all the time, listen, don't show me your papers, whatever, unless you have a level three or above paper, right? Level three is the first level where you have a control, Right. So unless you show me level three or above and ideally it would be level one or two, it's going to be a gold standard. It's going to be a meta analysis. Right. Um, but if if not, I want you to show me a randomized, double blind, placebo controlled prospective study. And and that is different than two guys writing in their backyard. Oh, my neighbor um, drank Javex and, and he was OK from and he got rid of COVID. Boy. Like. It's it's not all the same. And the thing is, because, uh, again, this comes back to what I said before, dumb people can't rule the world. Um, if people don't have a good ability to critically analyze, like, you, you know this. Analyzing a paper, this is a skill, right? We spent time during our residency and during medical school learning how to analyze a paper. And I would say I am still... Even myself, I am a novice at this, right? Um, and so if I'm a novice and I did this for, you know, I did it uh, in an academic setting for eight years. And then, um, and well, actually before that, because I, I have a master's uh, uh, in that where I was doing lab work and bench work. So even longer than that. So if I've been doing that for 12 years or whatever, and, and then on an ad hoc basis for the last 15 years as a, as a consultant, and I'm still not that great at it, um, the average person 
like, oh my God, they have no skills at it. And and then you have all of this information. You know, one of the benefits of the, the internet is that people now have access. So you have all this information and they their ability to critically analyze this information is poor. And so it's like, oh my God, like, um, what are they to do? They, they, they don't know and they can't tell it. They're inundated by all this information. They can't tell what's good, what's not. And so they all give it the same weight just, just because people can speak. And, and this also, you know, you mentioned Twitter and, and Elon talked about the, 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 um, you know, it's the town square people, everybody should be able to say what they want and people, people will figure out what's good. No, they won't. Some of the people might, but other people won't. And when you have somebody like Donald Trump having how many ever millions of followers and he's saying, well, you know, maybe we could uh, put some light inside people to get rid of COVID or we could put bleach, some kind of disinfectant inside of people. People will look at that and, and educated people will go, well, that's idiotic. Why would you do that? Right. Because they'll be able to critically analyze that and go that level of that level of information that gets a minus five on the importance scale um, versus other people who don't have that ability. They don't have the skill set and they go, oh, I'm going to give that a 10 out of 10 and I'm going to weigh that against recommendations from the CDC or from the World Health Organization. I'm going to weigh them equally like but see that I think that's the problem now is because they've built up this level of fear of there's a secret society holding <laughs> against you. There's all this is fake because I get that all now. It's like, well, this actually statistical data. Oh no, that if the FBI has been compromised, it's a right, right, right. Nobody wants to listen to this because we'd rather believe that there's some bad guy out preventing you from doing it. Where there's these, there's plenty of opportunities, but you have to. It's like, how can people be interested in YouTube videos, but not interested in learning about where their information's coming on, where they decide on how they vote, what yes. money, how they spend their money, where what charities they support, what how they live their lives? I just think it's terrifying. Yes. And well, part of what I'm trying to do, like I said, I want people to know education is cool. But also, um, when I'm talking about research papers, right? I want people to understand this is where I'm getting my information from. This is how I know what to talk to you about and, and how I know what's real and what's not. We, I throw those in there so that people, people can, I'm, I'm not saying to them, go read this paper, but I'm providing a source for my information. And I want them to understand when you are talking, you can't just talk out of your ass or you can't talk about something. Oh, I saw this on Twitter. And this is it's facts because I saw it on Twitter. No, um, you where's the paper? Where's your resource to to um, support your, your position? Right. This is the way that academic academically trained people. This is the way in science, how we debate our ideas. You come with an idea. I come with a different idea. We both um, supply our sources. And then we say, well, this is why my idea is valid or why I think it's right because of these sources. And we compare the strength of the sources. And you say, no, I think mine is right because of this. And we compare the strength of the sources. And in that comparison, 
we kind of come to a consensus to go, ah, well, you know what? These five papers that you presented uh, have stronger points. They're more accurate than these three papers that I presented over here. I think, yeah, this makes more sense, right? And it's not to say that it's it's uh, end all and be all, because as I said, science changes all the time. New study comes out, we get more data, and so then we can refine. But the, if the truth is this point over here, when we start looking for the truth, at first we're doing this, and then as we get closer to the truth, the oscillations get smaller and smaller, and eventually we get to the truth. But we're going to see things on either side as we, you know, as we work through scientific method and research um, to, to get, gather the information that helps us figure out, well, what is the truth? What is the, the actual reality of things? Because when, as soon as I say anything like, oh, against, say, Donald Trump or somebody like that, they go, oh, you're so liberal. And <laughs> if you say something about the left side, it's, oh, you're so concerned. And I'm like, what? No, I'm just trying to validate. It's before my understanding of it is that is not pure. That's not something, you know, there's too many gaps or there's too many holes in that. I want to understand who did that, where it created. People yes. were believing, there was that one about, there was a God code in something where that you could read into the DNA and it was a message from God in it. And I said, the simple fact is you can look at that university and that professor doesn't exist. You know, and there's all these <laughs> and people are like, no, no, it's true. And you're like, because somebody sent you a link doesn't mean it's true. Yes. You know, you can't, it was just, that's what scared me. And the feedback, say your fentanyl video mm. and people are like, no, demonetized because it was about a drug or obesity. People kicked off because it's body shaming. You know, it's, it's rather than deal with the issues and look and go, is this healthy? Is this hurting people or um, chiropractors? You know, are they, is the procedure of snapping necks and people with surgical issues uh, a danger? People are like, no, no, you can't badmouth somebody. <laughs> How did you find that sort of attitude by putting the content out that's actually challenging into areas people go oh no no we can't touch that that's that's a wide area so so uh, um i um as i said before i'm a what you see is what you get kind of person right and so um and and i'm very outspoken about things uh, i don't mind telling people my position and and my position is not always right but i i will uh i don't mind seeing what i think and so there is this uh, there is this idea, like for example, with the chiropractic. Um, oh, I shouldn't speak about another profession and blah blah blah. And I actually got a letter um, from my college of physicians and surgeons um, because a chiropractor complained that I was talking about chiropractors in a video, and they said, "Oh, well, you know, my college said to me, with we we just want you." We're not disciplining you. We're not saying you've done anything wrong. We just want to let you know that we are aware that you have commented in this piece of content about chiropractors and, and you are commenting in a negative way. And we want to remind you that um, it's another profession and we should um, um, speak kindly of other professions. And I'm like, yo, I'm not smashing all chiropractors. Um, uh, I'm, I'm smashing chiropractors that do this particularly dodgy practice yeah. um, that I think is unsafe. And, and I, as a clinician, one of the roles as a clinician that I'm supposed to be, 
that I'm supposed to play is an educator. And I'm um, also supposed to um, look out for the welfare of my patients. And so if I ever had a patient that had had, um, you know, spinal uh, instrumentation and uh, a chiropractor did a manipulation on that, that, um, that person, I would think that that's, that's unsafe. And I don't have any qualms about talking about that and saying that I think that that is the case. So, um, you know, people give me feedback, uh, some of which is negative when I, I badmouth um, or say negative things about, um, about those situations. And again, for that, for the most part, I just refer them back to the literature and I say, look at if you like chiropractor and because it makes you feel good, that's your prerogative. And if you feel upset that I commented about a, a bad thing about a chiropractor, um, again, that's your prerogative to feel that way. But let me point you to the literature that says over here, here is either the support for this thing that the chiropractor did or the lack of support. For that yeah. thing. And again, let me refrain or let me reiterate that science is this um, practice where to find the truth, we do research and we then analyze the results of the research and we use that to um, guide what we say is true and to guide our actions. And if any chiropractor things that I have that I have done them wrongly, or I have said something that is is out of whack. All they need to do is to point me to the literature that says that what I have said is wrong. That the, point to the literature that supports their position in what they want to do, and and all, with the one caveat that it needs to be level three or above because. Yeah. Um, if they're going to try and refute something that is a meta-analysis and they're going to refute that with a case, case, you know, uh, a cohort study or a case series or an anecdotal report, man, get out of here with that shit. Um, like, yeah, it was presented in a journal, but that level of evidence is widely known in the scientific community to not be as strong as... You know, one guy writing in, oh, I had a patient that I did this and this happened. That that um, case report does not have the same strength as a meta-analysis that had thousands of patients in it, right? right. Um, and because the, they're just not powered the same. So you, you can't... You think it'd be the other way, wouldn't you? That you, like, say if you said, no, that doesn't work, I would do think, oh, brilliant. This is an opportunity for me to show that that thing that you said doesn't work does. And here's the evidence and here's the thing. We've all become kind of, why do we jump on the defensive? Why, like, why are we not doing things and saying, let's find out what is perfect for this patient? You know, yes. why, I just don't get why people sort of would rather sit there and do the ad hominem attacks or the, oh, what do you know about it? You know, and. But I, I think it's, you know, it is, I can understand why to some extent, because nobody wants to be challenged on what they do, right? And nobody wants to be told, hey, this thing that you believe in or this thing around which you have uh, modeled your life is crap. Nobody wants to be told that. <laughs> so I get that. But 
um, if their true goal, if their true desire is to do what is um, what is beneficial for the patient, right? And and I don't chiropractors. I don't think have have to take the Hippocratic oath as physicians do, but I had to take the Hippocratic oath. And so I'm trying to do what's right for the patient at all times. And so um, that, to me, that means, well, I, I need to find out exactly um, what is best for the patient. And, and you know, people uh, complain about me being critical um, in my videos about uh, chiropractors, but I'm also critical of orthopedic surgeons and, and physicians uh, in other situations um, as well. Uh, and I don't necessarily have as much content about it. Um, and that's largely because of, I, I do, you know, I, I want to educate people on a variety of topics, but I also, um, I'm playing the YouTube game, right? And that I am what things that work, right? Get more uh, views. Allow me to grow my channel. Those are the things I'm going to talk about because that those are the things that get views, right? But there's other things that I, I talk about. Like um, I, one of the videos that I'll be doing at some point in the near future is I'm going to be talking about stem cells uh, because people go, oh, my God, I, I can do stem cells. I have arthritis in my knee. And uh, this guy sold me, uh, you know, $6,000 um, treatment for stem cells in, injections in my knee. And, and it's going to make my knee cartilage grow back. And I'm like, wrong. It's not going to do that. And you got ripped off, man. And it was a physician that ripped you off. Um so I want I want to do a video on that. Uh, and that's something that I speak about. Uh, although I haven't done content on it, I do speak about that all the time with my own patients. And, and you know, pe patients come and they say, oh, well, can you do stem cells for this? Can you do um, HA injections for this? And I say, look, at this. the studies are showing the efficacy of that, uh, of these things is very, very weak. And uh, it's the results are poor. And it may help your symptoms a little bit, but in terms of um, re reconstituting your cartilage or anything like that, not going to do it. And it's a waste of your time. And I, as the owner of a healthcare facility, I could do a lot of that. And I could uh, inform or I could encourage my staff to do a lot of that, the, the sports medicines physicians that work with me. But I don't because um, ethically to me, even though I could make a ton of money doing that, I go, the, the research is not there. And I would not be able to sleep with myself at night knowing that I had um, conned people into doing these things, spending their money, and it's not going to be beneficial for them. So, um, you know, I, I do, um, people are, are commenting um, about, uh, what I say all the time, and they have have um, there may be some criticism, but I, I take that in stride. And and again, I always try whether it's the people in my office or the people on on in the comment section. I try to put point them back to the literature and I say, um, this is the standard that we use to determine whether what I'm saying is true or whether you're what you're saying is true. And here are the references to support my position. If you want me to shut up or change my mind, give me your references. I am, I am more than happy to learn and be educated. Show me your references. And it's funny, you know, usually when I do that, people shut up. 
and they just they stop. There's a few times when people have said, "Oh, you know, here's my references," and then you look at the quality of them and you go, "Oh my God!" Well, look at you had an N of ten in this this study. It was a, a case cohort series or whatever, it, or this was a case report one patient. Like, come on, bro, you can't talk about the whole world off of one patient. So, mm-hmm. and then I have to, then I have to go back and say. Thank you for sharing these, but th- these are the reasons why what you have shared, these references are not very strong, right? So you need more strength with what you're, if you want to refute what I'm saying, come back, but with more strength. But I suppose that goes back to your principle of lifelong learning. You know, you're saying, well, if I'm wrong, show me, and then I can look at it, I can absorb it, understand it, and then readjust my positioning, which science yes. does. Yeah, it's like you're saying science isn't the bogeyman. Science is a thing that's actually going to sit and go, okay, right, okay, we're wrong there. Let's readjust there. Let's find, let's repeat that to make sure it's still the situation and different scenarios. Because I, I love that how you've got like your on your blog post, for example, you've got things about, you know, just forget about exercising and actually look at generalized exercise patterns. You know, because you're you're figured out by what you're clients are coming to you with you can then say well this is what the standard problems are this is how we could fix it and you could you offer like training programs and stuff and i was really impressed at like how you broke it down how you demonstrate the exercises yourself and you gave understanding behind it do you think is there any kind of sports that you've found that have they all got their own inherent risks? Because I'm a big fan of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I love doing like the bear crawls, the, you know, using your head as a frame as your one arm's doing this, one leg's doing that, all these kind of things. I mean, you must see baseball players with like wrecked rotator cuffs from pitching, you know, um, footballers from dodging knees from getting hit and that. Do all sports have the inherent risk? Are there any kind of exercises anybody listening can do that's not that's not going to bugger them up in some way well so we're talking about two different things here so we're talking about exercise and then we're talking about sport so um all sports almost all sports have inherent risks in them um because the moment that you add competition to the equation right so like you can be doing exercise um and doing exercise for longevity and even, even that has some uh, risk, depending on what you're doing. But the moment that you start, um, you start to add competition to the mix, then you increase the uh, risk level uh, because of, 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 you know, for a number of reasons, whether it be um, many of the reasons have to do with fatigue, right? You start to adopt positions um, where your fatigue level is not um, allowing you to maintain that um, when normally you could, or you start to work outside of your envelope, your your opponent pushes you outside of your envelope, either physically or mentally, they push you outside of your envelope, forcing you to try to attain a position that you cannot um, normally hold. So all of these, like competition in and of itself, um, as soon as there is competition, then you increase the, the risk level. And you only have to look to um, CrossFit to see this. 
Um, because CrossFit is exercise. It, all it is is exercise. But what is it? It is exercise for the purpose of sport. So people are competing mm-hmm. at exercise. And I had so many patients in my practice that have come as a result of injuries that they'd suffered um, while doing either doing or training or competing at CrossFit. Uh, and, and, and CrossFit is only exercise. That's all it is. But now you have added competition to it. And in, in so doing, you have exponentially increased the uh, opportunity for, for, um, for injury. So, yeah, all, all forms of sport have their own inherent risk. But that doesn't mean, doesn't mean that they are bad or that they are wrong. Um, you just need to be aware of that and, um, you know, try to frame or try to, to manage what you do um, with that knowledge in mind. Um, and one of the things like people have to also be very realistic about the level at which they are at. And so let me pull an example for, for, for a moment from uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So, you know, if you are a world-class world competitor and um, like, say, for example, you're Gordon Ryan and, um, and you are now competing at the ADCCs or whatever, and there is money on the line. Right. Like this is your your how you earn your income and whatnot. And and you might not tap. Somebody's got a knee bar or whatever. You might not tap. Right. Um, And you're and not only you might not tap, but also your ability, like the margin between someone getting injured and someone being okay at that level is razor thin. Right. But if you have the skill set of Gordon Ryan, um, you might be trapped in a submission and you say, ah, OK, I'm close, but I know if I can do this one thing, I'm good to go. I, I can get out of that. He can recognize that he is at that level. Now, that's different than somebody rolling in their average gym. Right. And they're in the gym mm-hmm. and somebody's got them in a knee bar or whatever. And they're going, I'm not going to tap. I'm not going to tap. Like, are you a freaking idiot, man? Like, you're not competing on a world-class level. And you blowing out your knee and having to have multi-ligament knee reconstruction or you ending up with a – I just saw another video this week um, of a match, and I don't remember what where this match was, what the level was, uh, but one of the guys on social media that I follow posted it, and uh, it was uh, an ankle lock. And um, the the time between when he when he put the when he got the ankle lock and the time when he um, fractured the tibia was like like a fraction of a second, right? And um, the guy didn't have time to tap. And um, I just think like the the. Uh, the ability of the average person to know, oh, I'm in trouble. Um, I should tap here uh, and something bad is going to happen. And and then their ability to do something about it before something bad happens, something other than tap, it, 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 they're, 
like they don't have that ability. They don't have that skill set. And so like, why would they subject themselves to that injury? Um, you know, for what? Like to say, oh, you know, I didn't tap guys. Oh, look at now I have to have an operation and I have to have, a, um, you know, I can't walk for three months like that. To me, that makes no sense. So, yes, um, all sports have uh, inherent risk, but um, depending on what level uh, of athlete you are, that will determine sort of um, how how high the risks are and also, it will determine what is your ability to deal with dangerous situations to um, minimize risk. It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and level up. Because that's the thing, isn't it? Is a lot of people you say, "What rehab do you do?" And they go, "Oh, I don't know if you've got it in Canada, but it's like deep heat. You know, like the the heat spray on a muscle okay. when you get to, when it gets a bit sore, and I have a hot bath after. You know, yeah. and they're like, but you very rarely see anybody doing a cool down. We do the static stretching. We're taught yeah. in physical education when we start, and I never even thought about kind of including like the medic the the mindset thing of, you know, this isn't your this is an indicator of your masculinity. If you tap to a girl, you know, who's been training it for more years than you, who knows the leverage points or somebody catches an e-bar, you just say, oh, well done. You continue on. I want to walk. I need to walk (laughs) to get to my job and stuff. It's quite scary. So how, I mean, you have this great thing about injury prevention in your, you know, like your focus. How do you get people to kind of implement that in you know is there a kind of warm-up and a cool-down drills that you would do to kind of to get people to understand and does it change as you get an older athlete so i think um the injury prevention is something that everybody should be doing Um, and the way that i kind of get people to incorporate that is um by stressing the importance of mobility training and and i i speak to people about different aspects of athletic performance and I, I try to stress that um, there each component of athletic performance um, is equally important as the others and we need to address them all in order to optimize athletic performance and so in my mind um, the the aspects of athletic of athletic performance are flexibility, strength, mobility, which is a combination of these two. So first of all, you have to have a joint that has a a range of motion. And in order to maximize our function, we usually want to maximize the range of motion of the joints involved in that particular activity. 
um, then you need to have strength and you need to have a absolute level of strength that will allow you to um, stabilize the joints in question and then move the um, segments around those joints. Then you want to be able to have mobility, which is, um, my, in my mind, mobility is um, strength throughout a full range of motion. So I talked about absolute strength, but it's not just good to be strong in one position. You want to figure out and learn how to apply that strength throughout the entire range of motion because muscles have optimal lengths. So they don't necessarily work the same throughout the entire range of motion. So the, the person who is able to extend the range of motion over which they can apply strength through a given joint, that person is going to function better. And then once you've done the mobility, you want to now be able to um, show a mastery of your ability to move. So flexibility, strength, mobility are things that apply to individual joints or individual segments of the body. But um, when we combine those things all together to then move the body, that is the final sort of piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and this is what um, allows us to perform maximally. And so when I talk to athletes, I say, um, if you are super strong, but you're inflexible, um, you are going to function more poorly than the guy that has both. And if you are very flexible, but you have no strength, um, you are going to function more poorly than the person who is both flexible and strong and has great mobility. So we need to um, address all components. And I always encourage people to, to um, focus their time not eliminate everything else, but to focus most of their effort on the area in which they're weak. And that's because, well, like if you are fast already, you are not necessarily going to gain more performance by trying to be just faster because you're already fast. But the things like instead of trying to think about what are the things that will make you faster or add more fuel to the fire or more gasoline to the engine, we need to also consider what are the things that are putting brakes on you, right? Like what is the things that are slowing you down? And so for example, if you have somebody that's super strong um, and they are a sprinter, uh, and they have great turnover cadence, so that their their ability to hit the ground in a number in you know number of times in a given time period, um, that's already high. Well, what is the next best way if that person is super strong, has a good cadence, but they're not very flexible? Well, what happens when you increase their flexibility at the hip and knee and ankle? Well, you you increase their stride length. So if I take somebody who is really strong and he can hit the ground, say in a hundred meter race, he can hit the ground 100 times, right? But all of a sudden I take that person from having a um, two meter stride and I turn them into somebody who has a 2.5 meter stride simply by increasing the flexibility of the hip, knee and ankle joints, right? Now I've taken that person and taken them from somebody who in the world 100 meter finals 
didn't qualify, and then I make them into somebody who could potentially be um, racing against, you know, um, uh, what's his face there, uh, Usain Bolt, right? Um, and and I've I've addressed their weakness. I've I've um, treated the deficit that they had and used that to improve their performance. So you. By focusing on the, the weak aspect you uh, and spending a lot of your time there, I think you get more bang for bang for buck, right? It's, it's like the law of diminishing returns. You're already almost maxed out on the speed. So spending more time on, on speed or strength won't necessarily help you. But spending more time on that thing that is um, weak will give you more bang for, for your buck in the end. So... Um, I, I just try to um, encourage athletes to work on their weaknesses. And generally speaking, um, because athletes tend to spend more time on bigger, faster, stronger, um, it's usually their flexibility. And if their flexibility is poor, then for sure their mobility is going to be shit. Um, and so I try and get them to work on those two things. And, and I try to get them to incorporate them. So if, if you... Um, like when we're training in our facility, so when we do classes, so I, um, I will, um, I share some of the, uh, teaching duties at, at our gym and I teach every third, uh, weekend. And, um, on when I'm doing my classes, I do them in the way that we do them, uh, sort of in our organization. And what we do is we have our warm up, then we do what we call structural work. We have strength work, uh, and then we have our our cool down, uh, our our cardio, so cardio, uh, our conditioning work, and then cool down. So the structural for us is our mobility work, and so um, the mobility work. So we've warmed up, we have our muscles warmed up, um, and the mobility work is um, focused around things that we're going to be doing in our strength session, and it's. Um, um, dynamic. It's all dynamic work um, because we don't like to do static stretching before activity. We do that at the end during the cool down. Um, but we incorporate the mobility work and it um, is, you know, whatever positions that we're going to be doing. So say, for example, we're doing Olympic lifts and we're going to be doing barbell snatch. Then I'm going to be working on shoulder mobility. I'm going to be working on hip mobility. Um, when I'm doing that structural work um, and I'm trying to impress upon people um, the importance of not only are we flexible here, but we are trying to um, apply strength throughout the full range of motion so that we have better control of the positions and um, better ability to transition from one position to another. No, I love that. That's, I mean, that alone would have helped so many people because I think a lot of people, like you're saying, bigger, stronger, faster. Yes. I've seen a big guy in the gym deadlift and squat, so I'm going to do that. Never mind <laughs> the fact that he's probably buggered up his shoulder muscle, he's wrecked his back from squatting poorly, you know. And yeah, is do you think that's just from us not understanding how the body works? Because you have a lot of like very, um, you know, very deep kind of analytical tools that you utilize. You know, you show where the muscles are, how they forge into things. You have your Instagram posts where you show like how the shoulders set up and things like that and how things go wrong. Do you think we've almost forgotten that our bodies are meant to go like 3D work together? Our movement patterns aren't just up and down. They're kind of 
we're meant to be almost animal-like. Um, we've kind of... For sure. I think that people have, have forgotten uh, that. And, um, you know, I think people tend... We tend to really, for the most part, only think about um, the sagittal plane, right? Like, um, and, and that's because we move, like our eyes are in the front and we move front, front to back. So everything that we do is either front or back, like moving front forwards or backwards. And obviously with sports, we've now added lateral work there. So that's a little bit of the frontal plane. But usually when we train, most of our training is in the frontal plane. Um, and, um, you know, when you think about athletes, um, and when I think about some of uh, the world's best athletes, and usually when I talk about this, I'm, I'm picking people in North American sports because uh, uh, that what, you know, people can um, relate to. And I'm trying to think of people now from, from – uh, uh, European sports. Um, but like, see, if you think about like, uh, for example, Messi or Ronald, uh, well, Ronaldinho is not European, but he plays in the Premier League. What? So if you think about some of these athletes, right, and you look at them and, and you think about how they move relative to other people, um, their ability to go from one position to another um, in all planes, whether it be the sagittal plane, the frontal plane, the transverse plane, um, their ability to do that is different than the average person. And this is, um, you know, it's not the entire aspect of what sets them apart, but it is one of the aspects that sets them apart than the average player. And so, um, I think a lot of people, the average Joe, forgets about this. But the um, people who are playing at that uh, those highest levels of sport, they have an ability to um, uh, function um, in all planes, and they have an ability to master their movement in all of these planes. They have demonstrated that, right? And so if I go back to, again, um, Gordon Ryan, I, I watched, um, I watched uh, an interview. Lex Friedman was interviewing John Danner, Donahue, who is Gordon Ryan's coach. And um, uh, John was giving Lex an analysis of matches uh, that Gordon went through at the ADCCs. And um, he was talking about their plan. You know, my our plan was to go through these matches with the least amount, expending the least amount of effort and, and um, suffering or incurring the least amount of injuries, right? And do it in as quickest time as possible so that we could get to the final match. They, they had already laid out a game plan of where we're, we're going to be in the finals. I want to get to the final match and be in the best shape with the largest energy reserve possible, right? So when you watch that, I was watching these matches, and I'm not a jiu-jitsu player. Uh, I did have a – like I did start jiu-jitsu a long time ago when I was young, but it, it was to me I stopped at that time. I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, it's not flashing up. I'm switching to taekwondo. I want that. So I did taekwondo. Anyway, 
But now, as somebody who watches MMA and, and watches UFC, I'm a big fan of jiu-jitsu. Um, and um, we have a number of jiu-jitsu athletes that come and train with us for flexibility, mobility work. Um, and even some of our staff um, play jiu-jitsu now. And one of the things that uh, I can appreciate because of my exposure to that is uh, and I cannot fully appreciate this because I don't know how to move from position to position. But I can see um, when I'm watching people who are skilled, their ability to move from position to position. And when you watch, when I watched this match, and I watched these highlights, and I watched Gordon Ryan's ability to move from position to position. And, and it's not like he's moving for, through positions in a vacuum. He is moving from position to position while his opponent is actively trying to do other shit, right? He, his opponent is just trying to get away or to do things to him and to watch him effortlessly move from position to position, maintain top control, do this, get out of the guard, pull guard, do this. Uh, counteract this position while at the same time getting the guys back. Oh, but by now, oh, and by the way, I, I did this. And at the same time, I secured a, tr a body triangle. And then I got this position. Like you look at that and you go, oh, that's so beautiful to watch. It's so easy. Um, and looking at that and then comparing that to like, say, a white belt, comparing that to stuff that I might do myself, even though I can recognize the beauty of that, it's like, I don't know how to do that. I couldn't do that. And, mm -hmm. and um, like, I, I just think, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing when you see somebody um, at that skill level, um, their ability to move through positions. And in this particular case, we're talking about um, jujitsu, but I could apply this to soccer, to whatever. I could take somebody um, who would never, you could take somebody, pull, walk outside of your house, pull somebody off the street, and you could show them some of the world's greatest hockey players moving. And then you could show them, contrast that with a video of some guys playing, um, you know, pick up hockey on, on, on the, the frozen pond. And they would instantaneously be able to tell you who's the skilled player. Why? Efficiency of movement. Efficiency of movement, grace of movement, uh, ability to go from one position to another with minimal amount of effort. And you don't need to know anything about that sport to be able to know, to recognize that, right? It, it is just when the body is moving well, it's something that everybody can recognize, right? And it takes time to be able to develop that uh, ability. Um, and, and so... You know, I, I try to impress upon athletes um, in order to get to that, you need to nurture all aspects of your fitness. And, and as uh, a clinician and now as a kind of a movement guy, I've now recognized that um, mobility training, uh, mobility is one aspect of that fitness and um, you can have all of the other. And if you want to um, in, improve the level at which you perform and take it to the next, then mobility training is certainly something that you can that you need to um, address.
I love that because when I, I remember when I first said jujitsu, I was like the you know the the first character you get in a video game. I was like up, down, left, right. I, I <laughs> forgot you could turn, rotate, and you know. I want to look back now. I still have to t- tell myself that sometimes. You know that you can like go over the different spatial way. You know, my I think it's you get so used to just like you're saying forward and back, up, down, forward, back. You know, like it's some sort of cheat code that is ingrained, and we have to kind of hang. I've got so many more questions. We could, and I know we're way over our time limit. Are you okay for a few more? Yeah, go ahead. And we, um, we could always we could always do another one too, man. I'm having fun. Brilliant, because I'm, I'm loving this. I I, I would love to. I would, I could sit and listen to you for hours because well, I have on your YouTube channel. But so when something bad does happen like that, you know, like somebody zigs and zags. And, you know, they don't realize that they can flip out or they wait to the last minute, they get injured and they need surgery. How do you deal with the the sort of rehab side of things? Because I know you're a big component on looking at like how they heal up and how they, you know, how they get back to the full range of motion. Have you found any sort of literature, any kind of research lately into like, different food intake different rehab methods um you know just a different protocol of rehab that works better than the traditional elevate and just come in every so often so um uh, the brief answer is no and what I, i will say like um you know like much of what i talk about is experiential um and what i what yeah much of what i talk about with my patients is experiential in that not i try to um guide my patients using what i have learned in my own clinical practice and it's not to say that each individual piece of information um, is not vetted through some study because I'm looking up stuff about stretching. I'm looking up stuff about um, mobility or whatever. I, I'm doing that all the time. And so when I say to people, oh, well, you know, there's a study that shows X, you know, um, you've had an ACL reconstruction and um, people say, oh, well, I want to return to sport at this time. And, and I say, well, the studies show this about Mm -hmm. returning to sport. This is the timeline that should be uh, and that it shouldn't be time-based. It should be uh, um, objective. We should be basing your progression on objective measures, um, you know, including your ability, your flexibility, strength, and your your proprioceptive ability. Um, So I I will talk to people about individual papers like that. But the overall um, gestalt of how I rehabilitate people, um, I, I don't think that... At least at, at this point, I have not seen any papers on that. And I think that is because it is a marriage of all the experience that I have had um, getting to this point at which I find myself now. And that is my experience as an athlete, my experience as a patient, my experience as a um, you know personal trainer and fitness coach my uh my experience as an orthopedic uh trainee my orth my um experience as an orthopedic staff person and then finally my experience as a gym owner and um mobility person it it like what i do and what i tell my patients is a marriage of all those things 
And so in that, it's not that I don't think other people have um, similar views, but how I treat people uh, and how I train people, how we rehabilitate people is a function of all those things. And, and, and that, I think my experiences uh, in all of those things are unique. And so that is part of the reason why um, one of the things that I'm doing now, which I'm hoping to have done over the Christmas, Christmas break and to first start presenting um, for the first time in 2023, I have a course that I'm working on, um, awesome. which is uh, um, to, uh, I'm going to have different levels of the course um, with different targets, but uh, the course is called Apex. Um, and so Apex level one is going to be targeted towards physiotherapists. And it's going to be this, um, the, you know, conglomeration of all of these things that I have learned and my approach to training and rehabilitating people. And um, I want to uh, share that with the world and I want to share that with physiotherapists. And then, um, so the, the, the course is for the most, I would say it's about 80% done, um, now. So I'm hoping to get that done over the next couple of weeks so that I can start, uh, promoting it and presenting it next early 2023. But that is the first part. And then once I have that going and I have people starting to do these movements and starting to train people in the, in this way, then the next part of that is to validate that, right? Um, so that I can have the data to not just say, hey, this is what we do. Um, but now we've run people through this uh, treatment course um, for these particular problems. This is, the, uh, this is what we observed um, with uh, um, our, our training regimen. And this is it. These are our results compared to these other training regimens. And so this, again, this comes back to the science, right? To provide the data, to say to people, this is what I do. This is why I do it. And here is the data to back it up, right? So this is um, um, what I, I want to do because I, I don't think that, I think that I've kind of stumbled and, and I use that word because I don't want people to think, oh, I think I'm smarter than everybody else. I don't think so. Um, I just think that my experience, I have just had the right combination of experiences, which allowed me to um, stumble upon this approach, which I think is, it is effective and I think is beneficial for people. So I want to share that um, with the world because I want as many people as possible to get better as quickly as possible. Um, one of the things uh, I, I just, let me, let me find this here for a second. Um, Cause I want to say, I want to say it how I worded it um, uh, in my talk. I just put this in there the other day. Uh, just give me a second here. Oh, so yeah. So um, the, the concept so one of the sides that I talk about is called medical morality, okay? And, um, and I put this slide in there because uh, in some of the comments for my videos, and this is uh, videos on nothing having to do with rehab. This is just video, say, for example, on the fentanyl video. Some of the, 
some of the comments where people are like, oh, doctors, all they want to do is give medication and it's all your fault, the opioid epidemic, blah, yada, yada, yada. And um, it's all for big pharma. So I thought, you know, um, I was just was thinking about the idea of morality in medicine. And then I thought about, oh, you know, I should apply this to this the Apex course because I want people to understand why it is that I am um, I have the position that I have about therapy. And so uh, the slide was uh, medical morality. And so this is the position or the statement that I said. I said, um, it, it is my goal to treat the problem as directly as possible with the least number of sessions at the lowest cost of the patient to provide the optimal result in the shortest amount of time. And also to educate and empower the patient. Think how, like, these are all things that are beneficial. I want people to get as better as fast as they can with as little cost to themselves as possible, doing as little harm to them as possible. And I want to give them education and I want them to understand that really, if I give you this information and teach you how to do it, you don't need me. You can do it yourself. Right. Um, and it's kind of like this. Uh, I joke about I'm teaching people. I'm trying to put myself out of business. I'm teaching people how to do it themselves. But I, I think that that's the right thing to do, right? Um, and people, it comes back to what I said before, knowledge is power. And I think my goal is to educate people. And I'm trying to educate as many people as I can. And and part of that, in you know, one aspect of the education is educating people and teaching them that they don't really, for most things, you know, unless it's traumatic, the bone is sticking out through the skin or the ligaments are all torn or whatever. For most things, they don't really need me or a therapist or a chiropractor. They need a little bit of education, a little bit of not common sense and um, some guidance. And here, let me give it to you, right? I love that. And I love how that you're actually giving back, you know, you're not just sort of saying, no, you need surgery, then you need to come to me every, for the next seven, eight years. You're yes. actually just going, this is what the evidence shows. Do you think that's what makes you such a good surgeon that you, you know, that you learn from failure? So if anything goes bad, you kind of go away and see how you can fix it. You're watching these videos, so you're learning how people are messed up or how the surgery's gone wrong. And then you're using that to kind of like, do you, you know, because I'm not a big fan of like box breathing to deal with fear and anxiety at the time. Of that. But do you find that you're actually so well prepared that you've read over and you've, practice this now that you're using the experience to not feel the fear to overcome that anxiety um so you know well first i gotta preface it by saying i don't know if i'm a good surgeon i i hope that i'm a good surgeon i would like to be i would a good say surgeon. so <laughs> but i i know that you know um one of the things one of the areas of, around which i feel very confident is that my like i'm a technician i use my hands and i feel very confident about my ability to use my hands um but I, I often say to students um, or to people when they ask, um, if they say to me, well, what's your favorite case? What's your favorite kind of surgery to do? Like I'm, I'm primarily trained as a sports guy, but I do all kinds of orthopedic surgeries. And some of my favorite cases have nothing to do with sports. Um, and the, the cases that I enjoy the most are the ones that frighten me the most. Um, and the reason why, um, you know, there are cases I can prepare perfectly for the case. I can do everything exactly as the way that I learned in the textbook and everything. But even still, 
um, you know, things, bad shit happens. And sometimes uh, I do something uh, and like, say, for example, I'm doing a hip replacement. I'm, I'm putting in the femoral component. I'm ham- hitting it with a hammer. And um, I know that I, um, that I can hit it so, so hard before the bone will break. But, you know, in this particular case, uh, I'm working on little old granny and her bone is a little bit softer than normal. Bang, I cracked the femur. It's like, oh shit, ah. now what do I do? Because the component's gonna be loose. I have a femur fracture on top of that. And I took something that might have been an elective case and I've turned it into a, a trauma case now. Um, and I, even though those cases are what I call sphincter puckering, okay, because they make my butthole clench up, um, I, enjoy, I, I don't enjoy those cases in the moment that I'm doing them because it's like, oh, shit, how do I deal with this problem? But, but in hindsight, I enjoy those cases. And the reason why I enjoy those cases is because they challenge me, right? This is not the way it looked in the textbook. How am I going to fix this thing? How am I going to figure out how to get out of this problem? I enjoy those. And I enjoy the challenge of trying to come up with a novel way to deal with this that somebody might not have thought about before. Um, and so um, reading what I read and, um, uh, you know, looking at the content that I do or making the content that I do um, uh, is just part of the process of me gathering more information. There are lots of times um, when I look at what I do and like where I've taught myself skills. So say, for example, um, I, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm a general orthopedist because I work in a community hospital, but I am trained primarily as a sports orthopedist. And I would say like normally when you look at sports orthopedic surgeons, um, they usually do one joint. So they're a shoulder guy, they're a knee guy, I'm a hip guy. I am not that. Um, I have learned to do arthroscopy, so arthroscopic minimally invasive surgery in all of those joints. And for some of that stuff, so for example, hip arthroscopy, I've trained, largely trained myself. I was exposed to it for a short period of time during my fellowship, but I learned how to do that myself, trained myself how to do that. And, um, and, and I've trained myself to the point where I could say that I am, uh, you know, we just had a paper, I'm, I'm part of a group, an international group called the Define Group, and that p- paper was just published in the Arthroscopy Journal today. And, and I'm one of the authors on that paper, even though I'm not an academic guy. And I was invited to be part of that group because um, of the recognition of, uh, you know, what I was doing um, with in hip arthroscopy in my country. And um, I am very proud of the fact that I taught myself basically how to do hip arthroscopy. And, um, but it wasn't just in that, like, you know, I went and did some courses. Part of what I learned was from other stuff that had nothing to do with hips. I took skills that I had learned from um, knee arthroscopy and skills that I had learned from um, shoulder arthroscopy. And I, and I said, Hey, you know, what they do in the hip is kind of similar. And we use kind of some of the skill set. So I wonder if this thing that I do on a weekly basis over here in the shoulder, and this thing over here that I do 
on a weekly basis in the knee if I could try those things over here in the hip and if they would work. And, you know, I, I took those skills that I learned elsewhere and just kind of shifted focus a little bit and said, okay, I know this is a different joint. It looks different, but I know how to do the skills already. Mm -hmm. And if I can wrap my head around the joint looking different, I can just take these skills that I do over here, apply them over here, and I can do it. And what do you know? It works, right? So um, I, I think that uh, it, it, you know, there's some fear, certainly in um, some situations, but I now recognize that um, in orthopedics, and I'm sure it's this way in other areas as well. But in orthopedics, there are uh, there are some core skills, okay? And and those core skills apply whether I'm working in shoulder, the knee, the ankle, whatever. There are some core skills. And just because the landscape looks different, I know how to do these skills, right? And so I just have to take these skills from this landscape, bring them over to this canvas, and now work in a different landscape. And um, I have comfort. So even in these challenging situations, there's I have comfort in knowing, oh, like I can uh, I can manage this. It's it's challenging, but I can manage this because I know how to do X, Y, and Z. And, and those guys over here that are already doing this thing, they're just doing X, Y, and Z. They're doing X, Y, and Z with a different background than, than what I'm using over here. But I can just take those skills and apply it to this background. And eventually, if I do that enough, then the background becomes um, very familiar. And then I, I'm comfortable with that as well. No, I love that. I love that approach of some you kind of saying, well, you know, can we use this? And then you're using the the experience, and then you're looking at the data, and then you're thinking, did it work? Okay, but you know, it's like you're saying, it's like people who say, oh no, no, that's not the way we do it. You're now proving that yes, it works, and here's the data that backs it up. And the people who said, no, no, don't be silly, that'll never work. Now, now accept it as the way it's done. Yes, you for know? sure, for sure. I, and I, I just said to my wife the other day, um, I'm at this point in my life where I'm not uh, people saying to me, oh, it can't be done. Like I, I, I'm not interested. I, I don't even want to be around those people um, because I'm in the business now of figuring out how it can be done. And, and I'll just point to, although um, someone said to me the other day, can we, can we pick another person to talk about other than this? I, I will just point to Elon Musk for a moment. Elon Musk is going a little bit crazy, um, I will admit. He's going off the, 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 the rails a little bit. But the one thing that I will say about Elon Musk that I very much do admire, um, people have said to Elon Musk all the time, this can't be done. That's not the way we do it. And he just basically says, fuck that shit um, and figures out a way to do it, right? There was a time at which the Russian space agency he wanted to buy uh, a used rocket from them so that he could figure out how to build rockets and um, they would not sell it to them, sell it to him, right? When he first started SpaceX. So what did he do? He learned how to make them himself. And now um, there are Russian cosmonauts 
that are being flown to the International Space Station on SpaceX product, right? So um, who got the last laugh, right? Certainly wasn't the dude that said, that's not how it can't be done. We can't, like, that's not how it's done. Um, Elon Musk, the guy who said, ah, I'm going to figure it out. Maybe that's not how you do it now, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to do it. Um, he's the one who's got the last laugh. So um, I, I want to um, do that in my life and employ a can-do mindset. And yeah, there, are, there will be challenges and things that I have not yet figured out that present problems for me in my life. Right, they, I have these things all the time, um, but I am very much, uh, and I said it before, I, I, I very much view myself as a problem solver, and I am really, I, I, I really like to apply myself and trying to figure out, okay, well, this thing I can't do it. How it's like to me, it's no different than a video game. How can I beat this level? Ugh, I haven't found the, I haven't found the secret yet, but. It's it's all games to me, man. Like, how do I beat this level? Do you think that also then sort of bleeds into your your man management? You know, because you have all these amazing experts joining your you know your rehab team. You've got masseuses. You've got all these kind of amazing teams. You know, you work with like a lot of amazing nurses and anesthesiologists and all these sort of things. Do you think you, that attitude of we can always try new things. You know, I want you to go away and try different things. If you thought, you know, you have a, a good model of something that might work, let's bring it in and see if it works. You know, then we'll sort of feed off each other. Do you encourage your like staff to have that kind of idea that, you know, just because it's done like that, we can create it like this, we can shape it, but then have the data to back it up? For sure. I'm, I'm, I'm okay for people to uh, try new things and, and do new things because I am certainly not the one who's going to, um, um, you know, come up with every new idea or I, I'm certainly not going to be the only one that can come up with something that works or is effective. Lots of other people are going to be able to do that. Um, I just want to uh, um, have uh, you know, data and information that supports that position. That's all. And so if somebody shows me something new and it works, then I'm like, oh, great. I've learned something, right? Um, and, and if they they want to try something, I am more than um, okay to, to do that or to try that. I just, it, you know, I want to be able, I don't want them to just say, well, we want to do this thing or I want to try this thing because... Because I, I I don't want that. I, I want to know well why what's what's the reasoning behind that uh, and what's the proof for that particular thing. Um, no, it's a great way of doing it, and it's letting the your employees kind of off the the leash. You know, saying to them, let's see you what you're capable of. You know, use your interest, use your, and it's like you saying, it's like paint with this a new brush on this canvas you know kind of letting them i love that kind of management you know it's like letting the person not sink or swim but actually grow as a person and yes. learn and it is a beautiful way to do it they, How, they may paint something beautiful man i love that i'm gonna i would have to use that analogy more often and how do you because you know you're a surgeon you're a business owner 
you're a father. You're you you've got a beautiful family. You're married for over uh, was it thirty years now? Yeah, going on uh, thirty two years. You've been th- well. This will be thirty third year. Yeah. That's amazing. Congratulations. How do you juggle all these conflicting demands? I always like to ask like top performers, how on earth they kind of, you know, not so much like the morning routine, but maybe just, do you have a philosophy? Do you have a, like, how how do you keep all this stuff without going mad? Well, I, I would say, you know, I kind of manage it poorly. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, all tongue in cheek aside, um, I, I try to, my wife is reminding me all the time, I, I need to sort of uh, scale down what I'm doing because I'm a type A plus personality. So I would be involved in, with everything and then not be able to do anything um, to any great uh, level. Um, so uh, I, I try to, to actually um, focus, uh, to narrow my focus to um, you know, only a, a few things, as few things as possible, um, so that I spend time uh, and become better at them and uh, at the things that I'm involved with. And I, I try to simplify as much as possible. It's funny, like, um, uh, I, when I consider the surgeons, the group of surgeons I work with at my hospital, I have one colleague um, who... Um, will every new procedure or every kind of thing he always wants to do. Um, and then he does everything. Um, and whereas, and people say, well, why don't you do this procedure? And I, and I think to myself, I already, I think the breadth of what I do in orthopedics is already pretty wide. Um, but I see them, I, I purposely choose to limit what I'm doing because um, there's only so much time in the day and I only have so much time in the OR and I want to be damn good at every case that I do. So I need to, I, I recognize that there is a certain volume of cases of particular type um, that you need to do to um, maintain a particular level of competence. So for example, hip arthroscopy, which is one of the things I do, the learning curve for that procedure is very high. Uh, and you need to do about 75 cases before you get good um, or, or get competent. Um, forget even good. Before you get competent, you need to do about 75 cases. And then you need to do at least about 50 cases a year to maintain that level of competence. So my goal um, when I'm planning out my cases for the year is that, okay, I know what numbers I need to achieve, right? At this point, I already have 300, maybe 350 hip arthroscopies under my belt, but I know I'm going to do at least 50 a year um, so that I can maintain the level of competence that I have. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that means, well, if I do 350 of the, or if I do 50 of those cases and I'm only doing in total maybe 400 cases of whatever a year, well, 50 of them are gone for hip arthroscopy. And then if I want to maintain my competence for hip replacements, well, I got to do another 50 to 100 of those. Okay, that's 150 gone. And, and then I want to do that for knee replacements. So that's another 100 gone. Um, and so that only leaves you know, 100 or 150 more cases, uh, which I can focus on. So that right there, that's only three types of surgery that I'm doing. So um, I have to be careful about what I do. 
um, with the other 150 so that I can maintain that skill set. And I look at everything that I'm doing that in that same light. So um, I spend time on YouTube and um, uh, uh, social media. And I think, well, I want to be good at that. So um, I'm going to devote some time to that. But that means I need to devote less time to other things. And, you know, some people might look at what I have on my plate now and go, oh, my God, you have too, so much on your plate. Because for some people, they're just orthopedic surgeon, right? For some people, they're just YouTube social media content creators. For some people, they're just gym owners, right? Um, and I'm all those three things. And I and I would say, you know what? I could certainly do, if I was focusing my attention on any one of those things, I could certainly do be better at any of those things by doing that. Um, but I, I do think that I am doing each of those, each of those things adequately enough um, the, my performance in those things is adequate enough that uh, I'm okay with that uh, morally and ethically. And, um, and I think that I am focused enough that um, I, I can um, do those things adequately, but also become better at those things over time because I, I there's not so many other things to draw my attention. So, you know, those are the things that I choose to do. Those are the things I spend my time doing and I, and I'm not really doing much of other stuff, but the other aspect of it is that, uh, as I told you before, I'm trying to do cool. Sh I, I try to, um, try to steer my life in the direction of I'm doing cool. Uh, there's cool shit that I like. So I'm going to steer my life towards that cool shit. Mm -hmm. And I just happen to have been fortunate enough to, to be able to turn the, the cool shit that I like into businesses uh, and, and into work, right? Like I like doing things with my hand. I like human anatomy. I like medicine. Oh, wow. Look at, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I like working out. And I like training people. Oh, look, wow, I own a, a rehab facility. I own a gym. And I like social media, creating content and teaching people. Oh, look at, wow, I'm a, I'm a um, uh, content creator uh, making educational content on, on fitness, which I love, and orthopedics, which I love. So, you know, it's um, – I, I have – it looks like I'm doing a lot of things. But I've really kind of narrowed down um, and everything that I do comes from that, that, that focus. And, and, you know, if I think about in terms of um, YouTube and I think about people who grow their channels very quickly and you, you can see that you'll hear something where they, they talk about in content creation, niche down, niche down, niche down. And, and it seems like, if you make your content very specific, um, it's going to be hard to grow your channel uh, and grow your, your reach. But in niching down, you become very good at this particular thing. Um, people recognize the, the value of the content that you create, and then they um, engage with it more emphatically, and they share it more emphatically with other people, which then allows you to grow quicker. And so um, I'm trying to, you know, if I think of my life as a YouTube, my whole life as a YouTube video, um, 
I trying to niche down to to make my life about fitness, wellness, orthopedics, and um, in so doing, that is allowing me to grow um, exponentially uh, in doing all of the things that sort of come from that. I suppose it's like Gary Vaynerchuk said, you know, it's like you can make a business out of your passion if you crush it, if you, you know, if you spend time on it, creating content on it and, you know, build a brand around it and you're certainly doing that and you're changing lives with it. But what tips would you give me just now? Because like, um, I'm a single guy now. I've put on the COVID weight, you know, I'm losing that. We get back to the gym, et cetera. But for a man that's been married 32 years, you know, beautiful family, you're doing all this amazing things. What tips have you got for us single guys? How how do we find somebody? Because, I mean, I remember your video on you want to be married to an orthopedic surgeon until you see we're away mm. from home, we're always doing stuff. What tips would you give, like, lonely, chubby guys like myself? Um, well, I, I, you know, if I think to how I, I, I would say to you the same thing I would say to myself were I to be out doing, uh, if I were not to be, you know, married or with somebody, um, and I think how would I go about um, finding a partner? And I think it's, it's really pretty uh, simple in that, number one, I, I would... Uh, look after myself because if I don't look after myself, nobody else is going to. Um, and so by that, I mean just by um, looking after myself physically and mentally. Um, so working out, I think everybody needs to do that. And then eating well um, and feeling good, finding the things that make me feel good about myself. So in my particular case, uh, you know, exercise, uh, reading, um, enjoying sport, that kind of stuff. So I would do that. Um, that's the first thing, because um, you need to be happy with yourself before somebody else can be happy with you. Um, and um, then I would just go and do the stuff that you love, um, because um, if you do the stuff that you love, you are going to enjoy it. You're going to be um, in a good mood when you do it, and um, you are going to um, resonate passion when you are doing that thing. And, you know, if I think about what I would like to see in a potential partner, that those are the things that that would, that I'd want to see. And those are the things that would have people that would cause me to gravitate towards somebody. And I think that's the thing that would gravitate, have people gravitate towards me. I think, you know, in, in being, just as when I started my YouTube channel and I was sort of dry and didactic at the, at the start. And then, cause I was trying to be this academic type. Right. And then I thought, Oh no, I'm just going to be myself. And then I started to have growth after I was my, myself, you know, I, I'm loud and I'm, I'm a little bit of a handful and I'm a crazy kind of guy, but I'm just being myself. And, and in my workplace setting, um, people gravitate towards me because I'm easy to get along with. I'm comfortable uh, and I, and I allow them to feel good about themselves. And so, um, and in my videos, I think by taking complex topics and, and, and I don't like to use the term dumbing them down um, because I don't want people to think that I think they're dumb. It's not that, but people are not educated in, in those 
things that I'm talking about. So by taking those complex topics and making them approachable to people, I make people, I help people to learn about those things, but I'm not, and I do that in a way that makes them feel good about themselves. Um, and, and so in so doing, they feel comfortable being around me or consuming my content. And that um, makes them want to come back and spend time with me. So all of those things that, that make that happen, those are the same things that I think would make um, me approachable um, and, and then make it worth or make uh, it possible for me to find somebody um, and, and, you know, to, to spend time with. Um, I, I, if I feel good about myself, I radiate passion um, and, and kindness and, and, and humor and fun, um, then people will want to gravitate around that and then it will become easier. I won't have to worry about it. I, I, that, I think I tell people that, um, you know, if I ever talk to people about trying to find somebody, I, I had to talk to my daughter about this before because, you know, she's like, oh, why do I have a boyfriend? I'm like, and my daughter is absolutely stunning. Um, and, and I said, you should spend less time worrying about why you don't have somebody and just go out and have fun. I said, mm. because it, it, when people look at you, they think you're beautiful, but if, if they see you and you're, um, uh, you know, you are always looking down and dejected and sour and, and they think, oh, you're cold and you're not approachable, people are not going to be, not going to be interested. Right. So you, you need to just care about yourself, look after yourself, and um, um, basically make yourself uh, so that you would want to hang out with you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if, if you would want to hang out with you, then the, the, it will, the rest of it will take care of itself. You know what I mean? So that, that's what I would say to people. This is just, you know, it, it's... Well, it's, it's like, you know, who's going to love you if you don't love yourself? Yes, you know, that you're the the person that you need to have the best relationship with. I love that. that beautiful answer. I mean, I, we could chat for hours, and I hope we will. Like, but I know I've used up so much of your time today. So, what would okay. you what would you want people to take from this? Like, what would not so much as a I call it a go home message, but what would you want people to kind of remember or a general sort of philosophy from this or something that you would like them to, to pl apply in their lives going forward? So um, I, I guess the, what I want them to know is, is basically two things. So number one, um, education uh, is cool and, and learning, we should all strive to learn more because learn, learning is uh Information, data, these are the currencies of, of our, uh, our, you know, the world that we live in. And so um, people think that it's money and money is part of the medium, but really it's about knowledge and, and information. So um, the more you can teach yourself and, and, and people don't necessarily need to, it, people may have whatever they think about the, the, um, the, education system, you know, the, uh, and they may say whatever they say or feel however they want about that. Um, they don't necessarily need to learn in the um, standard education system, but education is king. So reading books, 
and people poo-poo reading books and learning and, and listening to podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, I am always listening to podcasts. I'm always reading stuff. I'm always learning stuff. So education is king. So and education is cool. So don't listen to whatever anybody tells you if they tell you differently. Um, the more you know, the better. So I, I would say that. And the other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, wellness is uh, is extremely important in our life. And physical activity uh, is part of that. And, and so uh, while I think it's very important to be smart and to educate and read, there are a lot of people who would do that and then they will shy away from education or shy away from physical activity and um, say that it's not uh, important. Oh, I just don't like to work out or I just don't like to do whatever. Well, if you don't like to work out, you don't like to live because um, that's the thing that's mm. going to keep you in shape so that you can acquire more information and more knowledge. So I would say that um, uh, incorporating fitness and wellness into your, your life um, are very important. Um, but it's for most people who are not competitive athletes, bigger, faster, stronger, although that I let, I lived my life by that for, for an extended period of time. For most people, that's not what's important. What's important is being well-rounded and um, focusing on longevity, right? So that means addressing all aspects of fitness from uh, flexibility, strength, mobility, um, coordinated movement, and uh, but also for diet and you know eating um, um, good whole foods, eating less uh, processed foods, and and all of that kind of stuff. So those are the two things I would say. Uh, education is king. king. Um, everybody should be be as smart as possible, uh, and that um, that they should look after their wellness. And and the last little bit about the wellness also is that um, you don't need. Um, to follow necessarily somebody's, uh, you know, there is no one best way to do it, right? Um, the the best way is the way that is going to allow you to do it for as long as possible, comfortably and sustainably. So that that what you need to be doing. So those are the two things. Well, until we can get round two, and I'm almost got you to go on to another appointment, but. I would love to have you on again. It's been an absolute joy to cover. And there's so many things I still want to ask you, but each of your videos is a rabbit hole in itself. You know, I'd love to go in and chat for ages about like space marines and all these other things, you know. So we've definitely got to do a round two. But until then, yes. how can people find you? How can we connect, see the great work you're doing, visit your facility, you know, just follow the juggernaut that you're building on social media? Sure. So um, if, if people are located, if anybody is in Canada, in Ottawa, the nation's capital, they can, we are more than happy to have them come to the facility and, and actually physically take part. Um, we uh, do day passes and, and we love to have new people come see us. So if you're ever visiting there uh, as a tourist or you find yourself in Ottawa, come join us. Um, we'd love to have you. Um, but if not, then you can find us uh, online. Um, you can find Human 2.0, which is our business online, um, on TikTok and uh, Instagram and Facebook under Human 2.0. Um, and then if uh, you're more interested in the general co um, content that I create, um, you can find me on um, Facebook, uh, Dr. Chris Rayner, um, on YouTube at Chris Rayner MD. 
Instagram at Stable Knees with a Z, and on TikTok at Dr. Chris Rayner. And uh, I have content on all those uh, on all those platforms, and I'm always sharing. Uh, I share content uh, at least on a weekly basis on YouTube, and I'm you know I try to do it more frequently on the other platforms, um, particularly uh, TikTok and Instagram. But content creation is limited by my by the availability of time, so I'm not always uh, as up on those ones as I am on YouTube. Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.